This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Ideas Festival, April 29th to May 6th, online and in Seattle. I think that there's definitely a, you know, a sense that our major virtue is our location, as opposed to the man-made environment, human-made environment that we've created here. As nice as that might be, (laughs) it's not our top selling point. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. And in case you wondered, Mossback's Northwest is a fascinating look at the history of the most interesting place on Earth. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're going to talk about when Hollywood has come to Seattle. If you haven't already seen this segment, which is called Lights, Camera, Seattle, I'm going to suggest you stop right now. Just go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and take a few moments and check it out. And we'll see you back here when you do. In 1962, the British journalist Alistair Cook came to Seattle to check out the World's Fair. Cook captured the Seattle paradox of those times, an unglamorous city whose main feature was its setting. This duality is one that Hollywood exploited, a gritty city in a pretty place. If you've ever come across a film being shot in Seattle, the first thing I think you'll notice is how big of a deal it is. Lots of trucks, lots of crew, lots of traffic disruption. It's big business. And Hollywood has come to Seattle. And Canute, you have been doing a little bit of research on this, on films shot in Seattle. Why go down this particular path? Well, it's, you know, it's a great local experience. Uh, If you live in the city and a Hollywood movie is made there, uh, it's so much fun just to kind of say, hey, I know where that is, or I know where they shot that, or that, you know, often uh, Hollywood films scramble cities (laughs) so that uh, you see a chase scene and somebody be in one part of town and suddenly they're in another. It's just kind of a fun way to see how you're seen through Hollywood's eyes. And, of course, there are many eyes, as you point out. Um, you know, not only are there big film crews, but many directors, many actors, many script writers. And so Dave Quantic, who's the editor of Mossbacks Northwest, had said, I, I think it'd be really fun to do an episode on on uh, movies made in Seattle. And so then you began the pro- you know, we, we began the process of thinking about, well, what movies have been made here? What movies have been made here and, and set here? You know, what did what these films say about Seattle? What have they said? And as we began to look at those uh, over time, a couple of kind of trends or themes emerged. And uh, so it's just, it's just a way to see ourselves through that Hollywood lens and see how they saw us. Right. It's a way, it's a way to imagine how other people see us yeah. and how people have arrived at Seattle stereotypes and... I imagine there's several movies that have, well, I know there are several movies who have perpetuated particular stereotypes about Seattle that we we chuckle at, right? Yes, indeed. So 
uh, let's start at the beginning. Well, I mean, the first uh, Hollywood movie, big Hollywood movie that was shot in Seattle was back in the 30s, and that was Tugboat Annie. Although it didn't take place in Seattle per se, it took place in Seacoma, which was this, you know, blend of Seattle and Tacoma. And, um, but, you know, you really don't see Hollywood here until the 1960s in terms of uh, major, you know, major films. And so our view kind of looks at the period from the 1960s through the 1990s. Um, anything more recent isn't quite history, I guess. And, um, and, you know, we wanted to sort of, you know, look at what we thought were kind of key landmark films as far as how Seattle was used. Uh, and I, yeah, used is probably the, the right word. I'm curious why the, the makers of, of Tugboat Annie chose a fictitious name, Seacoma. Why, why couldn't they just say Seattle? Well, I think partly because the elements of the, of the maritime tradition in Seattle and Tacoma were, were sort of blended because the character Tugboat Annie was based on was actually um, um, the, the woman who founded Foss Tugs in Tacoma. So I think there was just in, in the writer's head and, and whatnot, there was this connection where just, you know, uh, one, one town. He, he made a fictitious uh, town in the stories of Tugboat Annie, and they just carried that into the movie. But it was m- mostly, you know, um, shot here in Seattle in terms of the location stuff. So the Thea Foss tugboat, which still exists, was used in the film. Down at uh, Bell Street Pier, there was a huge crowd scene with thousands of Seattleites participated in. Um, so, you know, and it really captured that sort of flavor of the maritime city. Um, and you see that crop up in some movies over time. I we talked about uh, Cinderella Liberty um, movie from the early 70s starring James Caan as a sailor on leave in Seattle. And it's really, really uh, does a great job, although this wasn't their intention uh, exactly, but does a great job of capturing that period of First Avenue as Skid Road with the the bars, taverns, uh, the places where sailors on leave uh, and merchant seamen would hang out. Uh, it definitely captures that that sort of flavor from the seventies. Um, the grimy, the grimy part of Seattle. Yeah, and um, you know, w- once you get into the nineteen sixties, there's a very different image being sort of enhanced to begin with, which is uh, the Space Needle. Um, you know, we say in the in the uh, episode. We talk about the fact that Alistair Cook, famous for Masterpiece Theater and other things, he was a correspondent for The Guardian and came to cover the World's Fair and went up the Space Needle. And he he makes this observation that I thought was really interesting, which was he said, you know, you have this godlike view looking at the horizon. You see Puget Sound, you see the mountains, and then you look down at the city itself. And, you know, he says... It mocks the godlike view of grandeur, the works of man below, the sprawling freight yards, the waterfront, and miles of junk and secondhand car lots. This is, you know, pre-Amazon, Belltown, <laughs> and Denny Triangle. Well, Alistair Cook was 
very sophisticated, and maybe Seattle wasn't as sophisticated enough for him. Well, that's true. And the fair was supposed to change minds. But, you know, being objective about it, Seattle wasn't a, you know, nobody would have said Seattle was a world-class city in 1962. But the World's Fair was supposed to change that. Elvis Presley came and made a movie which was shot during the fair. It happened at the World's Fair. Uh, There's a famous scene of him dining in the Space Needle, which actually was not shot on the Space Needle. Um, They created a rotating set at MGM Studios in Hollywood, and they completely made an exact replica of a wedge (laughs) of the restaurant and uh, pretended that, that it was here. But it sort of represented this kind of, um, you know, mid-century glamour, the fancy rotating restaurant, this beautiful uh, harbor scenery and the twinkling lights and that kind of thing. And so it it had a, uh, you know, very sort of distinct image that wasn't a, it wasn't the old Seattle image of Doug Bonani. It was the new image of Seattle in the 21st century you know, Future, ultra-modern place. Modern, futuristic, as as was the theme of the fair. Yes, exactly. Well, the Space Needle's featured in a lot of different uh, films, either featured or certainly noticed. Any, any other films where the Space Needle really uh, sticks out? (laughs) Yeah, there is. So uh, in 1974, um, the movie The Parallax View, which is a a political suspense film, uh, and it take the opening scene takes place on the Space Needle. And there is a a party, a political gathering um, on the observation deck of the Space Needle. And a U.S. senator is assassinated, and and of course you know this is in the in in 1974. You're coming out of the late 60s with the you know era of assassinations, like Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. This feeling of political violence. You you've been you're navigating the Watergate era where there's you know suspicion of government and conspiracies and that kind of thing. Well, this this film centers in on that. And uh, the senators assassinated, blood spatters on the windows of the Space Needle. And the world's dumbest assassin, you know, uh, is, you know is, a, is a waiter, dressed as a waiter. And he runs up the Space Needle to escape onto the roof <laughs> and is cha- chased there by the security and then uh, falls off. It was interesting because when I was researching um, the book on, I did on the Space Needle uh, for the 50th anniversary, um, I took a look at the movie and and uh, I noticed that um, they had filmed it at the Space Needle. Apparently, they had permission from you know whoever was managing it. But when the film came out and it was this violent assassination scene, there were people um, you know in the uh, whether it was the Space Needle ownership group or whatever was kind of appalled by this and complained. And Bagley Wright, who was uh, president of the Space Needle Corporation uh, at that time, you know, said, well, gee, I, I, don't, I didn't know about this. You know, I didn't know they were filming. So quickly kind of backed away from it because somehow this was 
you know, tarnishing Seattle's image. No script approval for the Space Needle, folks. <laughs> no, no, and none requested, apparently. Well, the, the Space Needle uh, certainly was in Austin Powers. What was it, The Spy Who Shagged Me? Yeah, uh, you know, the opening scene, Dr. Evil is ensconced in a, in a uh, exclusive Starbucks <laughs> re- representing evil at the top of the space needle he he owns his you know the top of the space needle and and uh you know this is this is where he, he and his henchmen are are meeting um and but that that film was in the early 2000s so we didn't we didn't include it but yes it's it's definitely not filmed on location but we all know where it is well if you imagine the flip side of whether it's the futuristic, sparkling excitement of modernism and the World Fair, um, what movies have played on the darker, danker, damper, cloudy, moody Seattle as a set theme? Well, here's a film that's sort of, I think of it as a little bit of a transitional film because it has some of the hope and promise of a modern city but then it also has uh, a dark side to it, and it, uh, it kind of probes a little bit of the darkness of mid-century America. And um, that's a 1965 film, The Slender Thread, starring Sidney Poitier uh, and Bancroft. And it was based on a Life magazine story by Shana Alexander about Seattle's innovative crisis clinic. And the idea that people with a mental health crisis could call a phone number and somebody in there would help, somebody on the other end would help you and could talk you through it and could get you help. And in this film, um, Sidney Poitier is a, a student at the University of Washington and uh, he's working part-time uh, in the evenings uh, at the crisis clinic and he, he ends up ha- being the only guy there in this one particular evening. And the phone rings and Sidney Poitier ans- answers the phone and then he's caught in this long drama with uh, Anne Bancroft, who's you know a fairly well-to-do middle-class white lady who um, is threatening to commit suicide. In fact, says I'm committing suicide. You know, as we speak, I've taken the pills, and and uh, and so the film is a kind of a TikTok on, you know, are they going to save her? Uh, it's it's a drama filmed in Seattle. It has that element of, um, you know, Seattle as a suicide city, which you were talking about some of the images of Seattle. It's an old image that we used it's to have. A, it's an old stereotype, isn't it? That, yeah. that That the suicide rates in Seattle are so much higher than other places. Yeah, you know, and the rain and the and the clouds and, and that kind of thing. And maybe too much Scandinavian psyche or something. But... but um, uh, but the film, in, in many respects, is sort of upbeat about, you know, here's a city that's devoting resources, all, you know, all the resources of the city, in this case, to um, save a single life of somebody going through a kind of uh, mid-century, middle-class malaise. We'll be right back after this message. Are you nerdy by nature? 
Do you get thirsty for thinkers? The Crosscut Ideas Festival is returning to Seattle April 29th to May 6th with fresh conversations to quench your curiosity. We'll explore issues and innovations in science, health, equity, and politics, like wokeness in America, spiritual prescriptions for mental health, the heavy hand of the Supreme Court, and the rise of AI. Join Michael Barbaro, Audie Cornish, Eric Holder, Deepak Chopra, Ibram X. Kendi, Andrew Yang, and more. Tickets at crosscut.com slash festival. I think I remember probably at least 15 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, Sylvester Stallone action movie was filmed here. I think it was Assassin or Assassin, something like that. Yeah. But has Seattle been, ever With been... Antonio the... Banderas. That's right. <laughs> I think they were jumping off the monorail or something, chasing on each other on the top of the monorail. Uh, has Seattle ever been the locale for movies that are action-oriented or crime-oriented? Yeah. Or... Yeah. They, uh, yes. And it's funny you mention that one because when I told my son that we were doing an episode on movies in Seattle, he said, well, you you picked me up one time and took me to see a S- Sylvester Stallone movie being made on Queen Anne Hill. <laughs> I had totally forgotten that that I, I used to, like, you know, grab my kids and go see weird stuff. And and we didn't see the stars or anything, but, uh, yeah, that film was being made up there. And the, the only reason I looked it up was because he remembered it. I, I had no... I blanked it out. So uh, that that's a really interesting thing because I think Seattle for a time became kind of... I, I describe it as a, a low-rent San Francisco. I mean, you think about movies uh, like Steve McQueen... Um, you think about uh, Dirty Harry. There were these kind of copycat films where you had to have, um, you know, an incredible chase scene. Up, hill, up and down hills. Up and down hills. That's the thing. And San Francisco kind of made that famous. Well, you know, if, if, if San Francisco has been done, <laughs> you know, can you get find another location? Seattle was sort of perfect for that. So in the early 70s, John Wayne came to town and made McHugh or... Um, he's a private eye, and uh, there are some memorable chase scenes <laughs> in that movie. Um, kind of hilarious if you know the actual geography of Seattle, because these chase scenes would start out in one place and end up miles away in another place. Um, there is a film that Dave uh, Quantic turned me on to, what I had never heard of this film called Scorchy, and it stars. Connie Stevens was made in the early 70s. She's like a female Austin Powers, except there's no joke or no irony. I mean, she's like this super feminist, super sex, sexual, uh, super violent. I mean, she's super a detective. Girl. She's a detective. With the motto, mess with Scorchy and you'll get burned. <laughs> exactly. I mean, to me, it's like the Plan 9 from Outer Space of of chase movies. Um, uh, Scorchy chases the bad guys through town. They're heroin dealers, right? She's yeah, she's, she's tracking to, the connection, yeah. heroin trade from Italy. Yep. And she she is driving like a dune buggy. You know, this, and it goes, I mean, it's going up, uh, you know, Yesler Terrace. It's tearing downtown. It it's, goes downstairs and upstairs. She's, she's gunning it. She's doing like... 50 miles an hour down Alaskan Way. It is so over the top. It is so kind of badly written, hilarious. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just a hoot. And 
it has all these recognizable Seattle locations. You know, she's chasing a bad guy on the roof of Ivers and shoots him, you know. And then it's at another point, she's literally jumping off the Coleman Dock. Uh, the ferry <laughs> landing is jumping into Puget Sound. I mean, you know, if you want a movie that really takes advantage of Seattle, McHugh and, and Scorchy are those films. You'll see more locations. Well, and with Scorchy, I watched it, and what I loved about Scorchy is it showed sort of the very industrial derelict docks, junk all over. I mean, it was, it's really down there, you know, right in the mud. Right. Well, this is the waterfront before the sculpture park. This is the waterfront before the, the kind of uh, viaduct came down. You know, this is the, this is the old, uh, you know, the old waterfront. And you get glimpses of that in some of these early movies. And, it, of course, if you... We're alive in Seattle in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. You know, there's there's some nostalgia there for these some of these locations that still exist, and of course for the ones that don't. She didn't get any mud on her pantsuit and cape, <laughs> and the hair was perfect. You know, truly a superhero. Seattle also seemed to be a magnet for cinematic con artists. Harry in Your Pocket is a 1973 film shot in part in Union Station, Pioneer Square, and downtown that features a team of pickpockets. Another con movie is David Mamet's 1987 House of Games, in which a Seattle psychiatrist, played by Lindsay Krauss, decides to study con men. A key meeting place is the now-gone 211 Billiard Club on Union. The shrink is conned herself, but there's a deadly twist. And speaking of deadly, the campy thriller Black Widow, also from 1987, features Deborah Winger as a federal investigator who comes to town chasing a female serial killer played by Teresa Russell, who offs her husbands for money. This ushered in a darker era, which writer Tim Egan dubbed Northwest Noir. If Seattle could be a place of crime, then so too could its beautiful surroundings be infused with a sense of menace. After the series of films that depicts Seattle as, as a set for crime and chase scenes and, and that stuff, then there seems to be kind of a darker turn. Writer Tim Egan calls it Northwest Noir. Yeah, I think... I think um... Tim wrote a piece in the New York Times, and it had to do with sort of dark, but also quirky. And uh, David Lynch and uh, the TV series Twin Peaks were sort of the personification of this. And it's interesting because, yeah, you have these you have these sort of chase movies, you have these con men movies, um, and and then suddenly you're you're not really in the heart of the city anymore. You're in that area that Alistair Cook talked about as being this sort of paradisical, natural area surrounding the city. But instead of gazing at Mount Rainier, you're looking at the brooding hump of Mount Sai in North Bend. And there's a, a crime involving, uh, you know, a possible serial killer. And maybe it's supernatural. And... He made a film in 1992, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, which is a prequel to Twin Peaks that 
was partly filmed in Seattle, and it's just full of this kind of hallucinatory, weird, you know, and you get the sense that the, the Northwest is full of demons and dream figures, and and I, I describe it as a surrealistic hash. Um, but this this is a kind of interesting mood mood changer. It's uh, you know not just a place where David Mamet is running, uh, you know, has, setting a con con movie, but it's something about place. It's something about the the place where Seattle is and the dark side of that. And of course, right. you know, very dark and Freudian, and yes, but with with a weird kind of whimsical element. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's part of I think the Northwest noir was. It's kind of noir, but there's a, a maybe a bit of tongue-in-cheek to it as well. And then we get to sort of a almost a fluffy place, Seattle as the happy place, the peaceful place. Yeah. I mean, you know, it becomes—there's a period in, in Seattle's history, uh, kind of in the 80s and certainly in the 90s, where we become a sort of lifestyle town— um, and it's full of happy middle-class people. Uh, and, um, and so th- this turn is interesting because you think about um, uh, the movie to me that, that sort of symbolizes it is Harry and the Hendersons, you know, which is a film about Bigfoot. Now, this is, you know, one of the few Hollywood films is actually about um, a, you know, a Northwest uh, well, icon, <laughs> you know, it's it's about something that that we claim as our own. This region's, you know, mysterious creature, and of course, in the in the, in this story, uh, <clears throat> you know, the father of the fam of this family, they're out camping and they're kind of a little bit hapless and uh, chaotic, and they're driving the station wagon home, and they hit Bigfoot, and th- this reminded me of something else my son said. Uh, we were talking about whether Bigfoot exists and what the evidence for that is not. And he said, I, I think the most telling thing about whether Bigfoot exists or not is that a roadkill Bigfoot has never been found. <laughs> he said, you know, if you drive around, you see a dead version of like just about every other animal. Why Why is Why is Bigfoot not been hit by a car? Well, in this movie, he's run over by a station wagon. Anyway, the, the you know the movie ends up with you know um, him becoming a beloved member of the family, and they're living in in Seattle, and he escapes, and uh, you know a, a big game hunter is after him, and the family is trying to save him and return him to the wild, and it's it's just one of those sort of Northwest movies that you know kids of a certain generation love that movie. It turned Bigfoot from this, you know, scary, mysterious figure into this lovable, lovable Sasquatch. Yes, yeah. exactly. And um, and then you know that movie is followed. You have um, Sleepless in Seattle. Yes, you the, know the movie that everybody talked about. I mean, the the buzz and the continuing legacy of that movie is it's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, Seattle's in the title. Right. And these other, you know, these other movies, Seattle is really just a secondary. This is at the same time that Michael Kinsley, the founder or editor of Slate magazine, is featured on the cover of Newsweek with the title, Everybody's Moving to Seattle, Should You? (laughs) 
Yes. And he's holding a salmon, as I remember. Right. Right. Yeah. But I think, yeah, this is in that sort of era of um, kind of the flowering of 90s yuppie, <laughs> yuppie Seattle. And I remember, you know, Tom Hanks has this enormous houseboat in a prime location with a fabulous view. And I remember even at the time thinking, how could he afford that? You know, even then, even then, you know, let alone now. Um, and um, but there, you know, a, a lot of movies, you know, have touch base at the Pike Place Market. This movie has a scene where he and Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner's giving him dating advice of all people. And they're sitting at the counter at the Athenian. I think they even have a plaque there. This is the sleepless in Seattle seat at the counter. Um, oh, it's still, you know, it still has vibes. People still want to go to find that houseboat um, off Westlake. Still has a tourist legacy for sure. Yeah, I didn't see it till I went on one of those duck tours. They don't do them anymore, but I uh, took my granddaughter and, yeah, we cruised right by the sleepless in Seattle house. Did somebody yell, get off my water. <laughs> So then we get to what you call the most definitive Seattle movie of the era. Well, you know, we're in the 90s, and the movie Singles comes out. Cameron Crowe wrote it. He used to live up in this part of the world. And, um, you know, I, I described it as friends meet grunge. I mean, it's a coming-of-age movie, a bunch of young 20-somethings living in Seattle. And, of course, they're living in these fabulous apartments on, you know, barista income. So you know it's not current. I mean, the movie is dramatically dated. The thing is, in that movie, every cliche, Seattle cliche, coffee, mosh pits, flannel, grunge, one of the main characters is a high-speed transit advocate. It, oh, I mean, an just, urbanist. Yeah, exactly. He gets turned down by the mayor, by the way, played by Tom Skerritt. Anyway, it, 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 it's interesting in that you get this image of the grunge era in, in Seattle as having no darkness to it at, at all. Um, and in fact, it's just, a, you know, a bunch of 20-somethings having the time of their life and, you know, getting to go to great clubs every night and... It, it's funny because the movie, while it's it's like, you know, sort of almost a caricature of Seattle or aspects of Seattle, it wasn't meant to be a Seattle movie. Um, I read that Cameron Crowe, the film was actually in development in the 80s. It wasn't meant to be a grunge movie? Mm -mm. No, it was, it was being written as a kind of teen romance, young people finding their way movie. And then when grunge hit, it was like, oh, we got to go to Seattle and turn it into a grunge movie. And, and it's interesting because it has grunge figures. Um, uh, Matt Dillon is one of the uh, actors, and he, he has a band called Citizen Dick. Apparently, they're, they're not a very good band, but playing the band is the members of Pearl Jam. <laughs> so you get to see, um, you know, this kind of pre-fame <laughs> cast. In, any other landmarks? Well, there's a non-Seattle landmark, which is a standout. In, there's a 1999 film, 10 Things I Hate About You. And as I have come to understand, <laughs> this movie 
it, it's it's an important movie for a lot of young people, post baby boomer folks. So you're talking millennials and Gen Z people, and it's a you know it's a coming of age story. Heath Ledger is one of the stars, but he's you know a high school student, um, and it takes place at a high school in Seattle, and um, some of it is filmed here. But the high school itself is the spectacular Stadium High School in Tacoma, which is, you know, like a, how would you describe it? It's it's like a Victorian palace, um, you know, just has more character than any high school you've ever, uh, ever seen. And um, so they keep showing shots of that. And it's distracting, of course, if you're looking for Seattle locations, because you're like, that's not in Seattle. Nowadays, Seattle has been largely bypassed by Hollywood. Tinseltown has found a town that makes a better Seattle. Vancouver, BC is now a regular stand-in for the Emerald City. That's Hollywood. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.